The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, you're the king. You get to say what you want. We need to listen. I pray you'd help us to listen. Help us to hear what you have to say this morning. Lord, break down our defenses, our fears. Help us to just hear you and uh, believe you and trust you. Lord, help me as I teach this to, te- to teach it appropriately, faithfully, um, and in all things. Lord, let us just see at the end of it your grace to us that you invite us to appreciate and help us to weed out, Lord, anything in our hearts, our little mini Pharisees. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and that leads us to chapter 23. So I just want you to know that I didn't choose this passage specifically because I'm like, oh, you need to hear this. Although, guess what? If it's in the Bible, who needs to hear it? I do. You do. We do. It's God's Word. We're in chapter 23, and it's obviously an intense moment. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's going to be crucified in a couple days. That's on his mind. It's also his last public sermon, the last one he gives to the crowds at large. And it's also some of the harshest words in the Bible. Did you hear them? Example, verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? (laughs) Can you imagine being there? You're snakes, Jesus says, and you're going to hell. Now, we might want to go back in time because in our culture, we're, you know, we love a certain kind of tolerance, right? A certain kind of political correctness. We want to take Jesus you know, by the shoulders and say, Jesus, don't you know you're not allowed to say that about people's personal beliefs? Does anybody want to do that? But shouldn't we listen up a little bit? Shouldn't we also ask, why is he so angry? Is there anything that's worthy of that anger in him? Um, By the way, he's also heartbroken as well. We'll see it at the end. He's heartbroken. And this might surprise us to remember, who is he calling vipers and serpents? To whom is he threatening hell? It's not what we would call the sinners, right? The, The bad people. In that day, it would have been the tax collectors. They've abandoned their people, they've abandoned God, they're like the mafia. In that day it would have been the prostitutes, right? They, they seem dirty, unclean, outsiders. Is that who Jesus is talking to? It's not. It's not. He's talking to the religious people. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to those who claim to know the Bible and claim to live the Bible and claim to lead the people. He's talking to church people. Why is he so angry? Two things. One, let's remember who he is. According to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the Christ. Christ means promised divine king. He's the answer to all of the promises and images and illustrations and truths of the Old Testament. He fulfills it. And he's the king. So who has the right to judge the religious leaders? The king. Who has the responsibility to judge the religious leaders? The king. Who's going to judge me? The king. He has the right. Secondly, he's talking with religious leaders who have become so corrupted 
to the point that they are horribly misleading and abusing the people. They're misleading and abusing the people. That's why he's so angry. Listen, according to the polls and the whatnot, what are people angry with the church about? They're full of self-righteous hypocrites. Okay, We've said that before. Oh, the church, it's too many self-righteous hypocrites. What's angry, what is Jesus angry about? Self-righteous hypocrites. Okay, He's more angry than you are. <laughs> He's more angry than I am about self-righteous hypocrites because who he is and his role and what they've become. So the leaders who were meant to teach and exemplify truth for the blessing of the people are doing the opposite. They've made up a new religion, new traditions, and it's all in the guise and pretense of loving God. So he's angry. And so Jesus gives seven woes. Now, for many of you, you think pastors need to have how many points in their sermons? Three, right? Three points in a poem. Have you ever heard that before? Okay. Jesus is messing us all up, because guess how many points I at least have to have in this sermon? At least seven, unless you want me to do seven sermons on woes against self-righteousness. So let's just do one, okay? Let's just do one and try to find the heart of what's going on. You realize seven for a Jew is a number of completeness. So for him to give seven woes, he is saying to this group of people, I mean, it's this mixture of, of despair, of disappointment, of anger, and of just being like, this is so wrecked, there's no hope anymore. Woe to you. Your, your goose is cooked. Your ship is sunk. Woe to you. Seven. Wow. So what are we supposed to do with this? Obviously, like we said last week, there's no point in us just cracking jokes about the Pharisees, although we'll do a few, right? It's too easy. It's too easy. But what's the point of making fun of a group that officially ended 2,000 years ago? Yay for us. Okay? Really, the only thing, if we have any integrity at all, the only thing for us to do is to try to see why Jesus was so angry with the Pharisees. What was it? about them, that had corrupted them so badly. And then wonder, well, does that exist anywhere else? And then the hardest question, because we're all going to be like, we'll all be able to find where it exists in other places, no question. You'll all have people come to mind and be like, oh yeah, that guy. I dare you, okay? Can you find it in yourself? Can you find it in yourself? So we're going to see this problem that so corrupted the Pharisees. We're going to walk through Jesus' words, try to find it in ourselves, but we're also going to do it within the safety of the antidote to this problem, within the safety of salvation, within the safety of what Jesus has done for us. So let's go. Just to, to give you uh, your brain some hooks to hang your hat on, some order, some, here's some questions to think about. Number one, what is the sickness that ruined the Pharisees? Okay, what is, what's the core problem? That's what I'm asking you. What's the core problem? Number two, what effect did it have at them? Okay, if you have this core problem, what do you tend to do? What effect? Number three, where is it in my life? Okay, and you're the best one at doing this for yourself. Where is it in my life? Number four, how do we get healed? How do we weed it out? So you ready? Here we go. Seven judgments. There's notes in the bulletin that might help you uh, follow along if you want to follow those notes. Number one, you ready? Here we go. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow 
those who would enter to go in. Jesus has two things to say about the Pharisees. Number one, they're hypocrites. What's it mean to be a hypocrite? A hypocrite is an actor, right? They say one thing. Oh, I love this. I do this. I follow this. I love God. And then in their real lives, they don't. You've been hurt by hypocrites in your life. Oh, I'm your friend. I love you. I'm nice to you. And then you find out they aren't. They haven't. They were fake. Okay? And the, the Pharisees are like case study for fake. They say they love God. And listen, their whole mantra would have been, we're waiting for the Messiah. We want the promised king to come. We've got to follow these rules so that he'll come. We love God. We want the Messiah to come. And then when the Messiah came, what did they do with him? Yeah, hated him, killed him. That's that's the definition of fake right there. I love the Messiah. Oh, he's here. Let's murder him. Look at how Jesus frames it. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. The kingdom of heaven, salvation, the way to know God, the way to know why you're here, what God has done for you. This is what life is all about. And the Pharisees walk up and they slam the door and they stand in front of it. They're not letting anybody come near salvation. In Jesus' first sermon, Matthew 4, 17, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's basically saying with that line, everything you've been waiting for, the kingdom to come, here I am. I'm the king. So repent, turn from your false kingdoms that you've been chasing, money, power, pleasure, whatever it is, turn from that and turn to me as your king. I'm the real king. I'm the only one who can save you. I'm the only one who can deliver you. I'm the only one who can change you. Turn away from all that stuff. Come to me. I'll take you. It's an invitation, isn't it? Repent. Come to me. I'm here to save you. I'm welcoming you in. Yeah, you got to turn, but here I am. Come to me. Come. He came to save. And the Pharisees opposed him at every opportunity. Every opportunity. In fact, if people showed interest in Jesus, they would kick those people out of the synagogue. They would bring public shame on them from the entire community for following Jesus. They're putting every pressure they can onto people saying, don't follow Jesus. Why? Why do they hate Jesus so much? Part of it's probably jealousy. They like to be in charge. They want people to follow them. And all of a sudden, here's the king. Well, what are you supposed to do with the king? Bow the knee. Give it up. I want to show you verse Romans 10, verses 3 to 4. Romans 10, verses 3 to 4. The reason I think this is important to this passage is because it's written by Paul. Do you remember what Paul's first career was? He was a Pharisee, so he knows these people well. In fact, he says, I was the Pharisee's Pharisee. I was the senior varsity Pharisee. A plus Pharisee. The best there was. Let me tell you what's wrong with Pharisees. Paul is saying, Romans 10, 3 to 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm going to go ahead and tip my hand. I think the core problem with the Pharisees was self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. That's what Paul seems to be saying here. Self-righteousness. Let's unpack this. Righteousness is one of those church words, right? Unless you're a little older and you like the righteous brothers. Or you don't like the church and you said self-righteous. Other than that, you may have never used the word righteous. 
What does it mean? What does it mean? It's such a key theme in the, in the Bible. It's so important to understanding what the Bible is saying. Righteousness is basically what God loves. It's what he loves. It's what he does. It's what he says is right. Who he is. He's righteous. He's consistent in that. And he tells us some about what this is in, in places like the law. The law is the standard of righteousness. So if you want some details, the Ten Commandments. If you want to be righteous, no other gods before me. So, so find your ultimate hope, your identity, your worship, your joy, your pleasure, and no, nothing else other than me, God says. That's righteousness. Or honor your father and mother. You want to be righteous? Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Uh, don't lie. Righteousness is faithful and it's honest. Descriptions of righteousness. Or Jesus sums it up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's righteous. Love God with everything all the time. And love your neighbor with the same passion and concern that you love yourself. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor with the same passion you love yourself. That's a description of righteousness. So it's God's character seen in the people he's made in his image if we are to live righteously. So that's the law. The law is the standard of righteousness. Righteousness is God's character. The law is the description of that. Okay? Now, just as an aside, now that you've heard some of the things in the law, how many of you are like, I'm totally righteous? <laughs> Being ignorant of the righteousness of God, okay? They don't know true righteousness. They're changing the standard. We do this today when we're like, are you a good person? Yeah, I'm better than Joe, my neighbor. He's terrible. Good for you. Joe is not God's standard of righteousness, they don't know his standard of righteousness. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. And they're seeking to establish what? Their own. Self-righteousness is saying, in myself, I am righteous. I can do this myself. I've followed the rules. I've earned it. I've done it. I'm nice enough. I'm kind enough, compassionate enough, honest enough. I am righteous in myself. They sought to establish their own. And when you seek to establish your own, no, I can do this, then what are you doing to God's righteousness? You're rebelling. You won't submit. I got this, God. Leave me alone. Do you hear it? Do you hear how big this is? I mean, that's saying, God, you're not righteous enough. Your standard isn't righteous enough. I will do this my own. I've got it in myself. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And then Paul says, where's the only place we get righteous? Verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Believes. What's the only way to be right with God? Is to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, why? This is so important. Why? Folks, Christ really is the only way to righteousness. We have broken God's law backwards and forwards, especially when we apply it to the heart. You know, some of us could probably say, I've never committed adultery. I've never gotten to bed with somebody who wasn't my spouse while I was married. Yay for you. Jesus is like, <laughs> did you ever lust after a woman in your heart? See, just, just apply the, keep, don't just do the law out here in the externals. Apply it to your heart. You ever lust after a woman in your heart? Oh, you committed adultery. Who's kept it now? 
It's that way with every command. The reality of our sins means we haven't been righteous. I am not righteous. I'm so not righteous in and of myself. I'm not. We've broken the law. We've made up our own standards. We've broken God's standards. So, look now at the uniqueness of Jesus. Even in the context of all the other major religious leaders. This is amazing. How many of the other major religious leaders claim to be without sin? Did Muhammad ever say, I've never sinned? Did Buddha ever say, I've never done nothing, anything wrong? Even they didn't say that. They couldn't say that. They knew it wouldn't work, especially if your mom was still alive. Especially if you were ever married. Imagine me saying, I've never sinned, in the same room where my wife is. Jesus said, I've never sinned. He actually said, if any of you knows any sins I've committed, go ahead and bring it to light. Crickets. In the end, when the Pharisees claimed him to be guilty during the trial, it wasn't because, oh, we found out he stole a Snickers from a 7-Eleven when he was eight, which I did. The only thing they had him on, they said, are you the son of God? And he said, yep. And they said, kill him. He can't be the son of God. He never sinned. He never broke the law. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. He never sinned. Not only that, he's the only religious leader who claimed to be God. He said, I'm God. He said, I'm one with the Father. I'm co-eternal. And we're like, prove it. He's like, okay. Let me change the weather for you. Let me raise the dead. Let me heal the blind. Open the ears. How about this one? They're going to crucify me. Third day, I'll rise again. Dead, alive. He's the only one who claimed to be God, and he's the only one, therefore, who can pay the price for our sins. He's the only one who can actually pay the price for our sins. All the other religious leaders say, follow these nine steps and God will like you. Pray, face a certain direction, do this, give money, do this, do something. Follow these steps and you'll be righteous. Jesus is like, that's a hopeless project. It's a hopeless project. You cannot do it. But I did it for you. He said, I did it for you. He claims to be God, and on the cross, he pays the price for the sin of the world. He, in his perfect life, makes him able to save. He, in his atoning death, makes him able to save. He, in his victorious resurrection, makes him able to save. The only one who can save you from your sins is Jesus. Because of who he is, because of what he's done. There's no one else. Look at all of history. There's no one else. He can save. And so the amazing thing is Jesus is saying to each of us, you have no self-righteousness but I will give you my righteousness. And it's a gift. Isn't that amazing? It's a gift. You can have it for free. It's a gift. But what does self-righteousness say, according to Paul in Romans 10? You see, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the people, you don't have righteousness of your own, I'll save you. And the Pharisees say, we don't want what you're given. We don't want what you're given. We like ours better. And if you keep threatening our righteousness, the Pharisees say, we will kill you. We love our self-righteousness, and we won't trust Jesus to give us his. We won't submit. And folks, I want to 
be controversial here uh, because I think every heart is born with their inner Pharisee of self-righteousness. I can save myself. Every heart is born with the excuse that looks at the life and says, well, my sin wasn't bad. I had reasons for it. It's not a problem. Every heart makes a new law. Well, this is my new standard. It's not God's perfection. Listen, every religion that tells you that you can be right with God apart from Jesus Christ is by definition self-righteous. We can do it, guys. That's the core problem here. I can do it without Jesus. I can do it without Jesus. Self-righteousness. And so when Jesus comes and says, repent, the kingdom's at hand, I'll give you everything you need. I got it right here. The Pharisees say, no. And they influence all the other people to say, no. We won't have it. Self-righteousness is the problem. And self-righteousness always rejects what Jesus has done. It rejects Jesus. Everything else is an echo of this. Let's look at a second. Whoa, I'm going to move faster, I promise. I had to unpack that one. Number two, the Pharisees were not only self-righteous and reject Jesus, they also encouraged others towards judgment. Self-righteousness influences and encourages others towards judgment. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Wow. Wow. So they would work so hard to get a follower. All the movements, all the religions work so hard to get a follower. This is the way. This is the way to be pleasing to God. This is the way to be righteous. Do these things. We can do it. And they'd pump him up. And according to Jesus, where are they sending him? To hell. I'm, hell is, an, is just judgment for infinite sin. We've sinned against an infinite God. It's an It's a just, infinite punishment to an infinite sin. And listen, this is why Jesus is so angry. Why did he come? I've come to save sinners. I've come to save you from hell. I've come to take your place. That's why I'm here. I came to save you. And the Pharisees will take people and be like, no, you can do it it yourself. You don't need him. And where are they airmailing all of their followers? into self-righteousness. You can save yourself. And Jesus knows that if you try to save yourself, you won't be saved. Because we're not righteous. Jesus knows that either we pay for our own sins or he pays for our sins for us. And so he is angry. He's mourning over the fact that these people so love their own self-righteousness that they indoctrinate others with it. And in the guise of religion and goodness and rule following, they are sending people to judgment. Self-righteousness loves company. Right? And, and haven't Christian groups been guilty of this? We, let's make our group and we're good. And, if, and if, this is what happens with the human heart. If you think you're good because you follow X, Y, Z, these rules, what do you think of the people who don't follow those precious rules? They're bad, right? And once we've demeaned other people's value, then what can we do to them? 
judge them, hurt them, abuse them. Every argument for slavery or for abortion or all these things where people are abused, it, it comes down to some sort of, well, I've kept this, right? If we're, doing, if we're doing old American slavery, what's the law to be a real human? White. And if you don't keep the law of being a real human, well, then you're not good enough. And that gives us the right to what? Abuse you. What's the law according to abortion? You're not born yet. If you're born, you're a human. If you haven't kept it, you're not fully human. We can abuse you. Law. It's a, what ISIS law in the Middle East. We follow what? These ideas. And if you don't follow these ideas, what will we do? We will abuse you because we can, because we follow the rules and you don't. And that's obviously the extreme version. But I've done this, and so have you. Not in that huge, epic way. But you have your rules, and if people follow them, you'll like them and show them compassion. If they don't, we've got problems. That is self-righteousness. We love company, and then we murder our company. Because we say to our group, our same group that keeps the same rules, we're better. We can do it. They're bad. And in our hearts, it's, we're not seeing our righteousness from Jesus. And if, we, and if it goes to the point where we're not trusting in Jesus for our righteousness, we're holding hands, singing our songs, and walking into judgment. That's why he's mad. Self-righteousness influences others towards judgment. And if this is, if this is true, shouldn't he be mad? Isn't this the worst crime? Number three, self-righteousness is deceitful. It's deceitful. Now here we can crack some Pharisee jokes. Because this is just awesome. The Pharisees love to swear things and then have loopholes. So three times in verses 16 to 22, Jesus says the Pharisees are blind. You are blind. You're blind guides, blind fools, blind men. You don't have a clue. Woe to you, blind guides, verse 16. If anybody swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. So you can imagine the holy man. I swear by the temple, I'm going to give all my wealth to the Lord. And everybody's like, wow. So holy. A week later, you're like, you still have wealth. What's up? He would say, hold on. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. Don't have to keep my vow. How many of you are convinced? You're persuaded? Oh, okay. Or you swear, uh, if anybody swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, then you have to keep your promise. What's God's law when it comes to promises? Thou shalt not lie. And what are Pharisees doing? can lie if you do it the right way just follow the rules on how you lie it's deceitful so jesus says you are blind you are blind you are blind to sum it up verse 21 anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it anybody who swears by heaven swears by the throne of god and him who sits on it what jesus is saying here is i don't care what corner of the temple you did or didn't swear by if you swore god heard it you're supposed to keep your promise 
Why the religious loopholes? We're so religious, and those religious loopholes give us the opportunity to break God's law. It's deceitful, and so they're blind. This was one illustration of the whole epidemic. Self-righteousness is deceitful. It's deceitful. Anyone who thinks they're good, number one, they're lying to themselves and to others about the real standard. Well, I'm not like Hitler. That's not the real standard. Or the Pharisees. I've never committed adultery. I had a certificate of adultery that I gave to my wife for burning dinner. Then I got divorced and married a new wife. Never committed adultery. Jesus is like, wrong standard. Okay? God's standard is the true standard. Self-righteousness lies about the standard. Self-righteousness also lies about the reality of their own lives. Imagine this Pharisee who's broken his promise four times because he's like, oh, I didn't swear by the temple. I swore by the gold on it. And then, and then Jesus talks about thou shalt not lie. And he says, oh, I never lied. Then swear by the gold in the temple. What do we do when it comes to our own sin? What does the world do? We justify it, right? Somebody gets caught red-handed and we say, nobody's perfect. And everybody in the world wants to be like, is that really up for debate? I don't think anybody thought you were perfect. I was tired. Did you see how mean the person was to me? Did you see this? Did you see that? Did you see... Loopholes. Loopholes. So that in the end, you can be seen as righteous in yourself. It's all a lie. All my excuses about my sins, they're lies. I'm a sinner. I'm not righteous. Self-righteousness is deceitful, isn't it? By definition. Changes the law, and it, and it twists the evidence on our own lives. That's why Jesus hates it. That's why he's angry. So they're self-righteous. Self-righteousness rejects Jesus. It encourages others towards judgment. It's deceitful. Number four, it emphasizes rules over character. Self-righteousness emphasizes rules over character. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. In the Old Testament law, there was... Basically, a, a tax on your crop. You gave 10%. You gave 10%. So if you really want to be holy and you have 10 cumin seeds, what are you going to do? One for God, two for God, three for God, nine for God. Or No, wait, wait, wait. Nine for me, one for God. And you're doing that with your cumin seeds because isn't that holy? He's tithing 10%. It's awesome. So awesome. That's what they did. And yet, when it came to justice, what's justice? People getting what's right, what's fair, what's kind. When it came to justice, how the poor were treated, how those who were wounded were treated, how those who couldn't keep all their rules were treated, how did the Pharisees treat those people? Cruelly, evil. And so they're all like, hey, I gave two out of 20 cumin seeds to God. And Jesus is like, but you don't care about mercy? You don't care about faithfulness? They emphasize rules over character. Okay, this is so great. The next line, where is it? 
These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Old Testament law, you've got all these lists of unclean animals you can't eat and such. The largest, can you guess what it is? The camel. The smallest, can you guess what it is? The gnat. Okay? Supposedly they would drink wine with clenched teeth like this. I'm not even kidding. Ceremonial wine drinking. And they would keep their tentacles so that when they drink, in case a gnat was in the wine, you'd filter it out on your teeth. So you could, oh, okay, get the gnat out of your mouth because it's unclean. So look at Jesus' joke here. I mean, this is fabulous. This is fabulous. He's like, I've seen you drink wine, right? And then what are they doing with the camel? (laughs) They're swallowing the camel and that's, he's saying, that's how I feel about your cumin tithing when you don't care about loving people. You're so obsessed with not drinking a nap, but you don't care about people. It's like you're swallowing a camel. What an illustration. They care about ceremonies and rules over character and love. Where is that in our lives? Where is that? Things we get angry about at church sometimes or in groups or, or, or why we treat certain people in our life. And, and we have rules to not forgive them, to not talk to them anymore. We have rules for why they're outsiders. And Jesus is saying, what about character? What about compassion? What about forgiveness? See, the cross won't let us do this anymore, will it? The cross won't let us do this. The cross, the cross shows us that love and character towards others is far more important than just rules. Any rules we have in our lives, they are to enable our love. Love is not a slave to the rules. The rules are a slave to love. Where do we emphasize rules over character? That's self-righteousness. Let's reject it. Self-righteousness emphasizes rules over character. Number five, self-righteousness ignores the heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. Clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside. They ignore the heart. What do they care about? The ceremony. You do this religious ceremony. How's that cup look? How's that plate? So clean. Let me get it clean because I love God. It's got to be clean. Love God so much. Look how clean the plate is. What's in their heart? Verse 25, what's in their heart? Greed. What's greed? I want more. I want more. I'm going to take it. I'm going to do what I can do to get it. I want greed. Self-indulgence. What's self-indulgence? I love myself and I have desires and I'm going to get them. If you're greedy and full of self-indulgence, what's the world all about? It's about you. When I'm greedy and self-indulgent, it's about me, but here's my special super-duper golden cup for God. They care about ceremony. They ignore the heart. They ignore the heart. It's self-righteous. If you love God, where do you have to look to be pleasing to him? What does God look at? God looks at the heart. He sees your motives. Receive your thoughts, your feelings, your compassion, or not. Isn't it easy to do religious things without putting any heart in it? Oh my gosh. 
I've broken this rule more times than I even know. Even something small, you ever sang without singing? Look, some of us are musical. We love to sing. Some others of us are not. It's okay. The reason we sing is because, why do we sing, church? The Bible tells us to sing. God likes to be sung to, so do it for him. And that's the point. What should be in your heart when we sing? It's a, it's a prayer. It's an engagement. If you're not a great singer, fine. Think about the words. Think about the ideas and echo those ideas to him. The heart. Do you think God likes singing when we're thinking about whatever we're thinking about? And listen, I'm not condemning you. I've done it all. I've done it all worse than you because I probably sang it more than you. Does God really like our singing when it's like, Jesus, but in our hearts it's something else? Is that worth anything? Or is it, is it worth anything to be like, I'm at every church service, but be a jerk at work or be a jerk with your kids? Or What's your heart? Or have you ever said you're sorry without being sorry? It's an easy one. Fine, I'm sorry. Is your heart sorry? Really? Are you sorry for your sin? Do you want to be different? Self-righteousness emphasizes the external, the ceremony. Listen, if we're going to belong to Jesus, what do we need to emphasize? The heart. What's your heart towards people? Your heart towards God and what we do. Number six, self-righteousness looks good but brings death. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead people's bones and all all uncleanness. So good. I learned this week, I didn't know this, that around major Jewish festivals, they would paint the tombs white. They would whitewash them. And the reason you did that is, I guess it looks nice, but the most important thing is, if you touch a tomb, you're ceremonially unclean, so then you can't participate in worship. And that would be a pain, because it's hard to become ceremonially clean. So you make this whole trip to go to Jerusalem to worship, and, oh, I stepped on a tomb, no! And you can't participate. And Jesus says, oh my gosh, can you imagine this moment? Jesus says, hey Pharisees, you know how we paint up the tombs? And they're full of bones. That reminds me so much of you. (laughs) That really reminds me of you. Oh my gosh, (laughs) What's he saying? Oh, you're all painted up with your fake righteousness. What you wear and your external stuff, how you look, how you talk, blah, 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 blah. But inside of you, man, it's like a tomb. It's all rotted out. It's unclean. It's, what does he call it? Verse 28, outwardly you appear, what? Righteous to others. But within you're full of hypocrisy. You're fake. You know you don't love me. And lawlessness. What's lawlessness? You're breaking my law. You're breaking my standard on what righteousness is. So you're doing this dance and this dress and this play of being righteous, but inside you are absolutely the opposite. You disobey me, you disregard me, and when people come in contact with you, just like they step on a tomb, now they're unclean, when people come in contact with you and your influence, you make them just like you. We covered that earlier. You make them unclean. Your fake brings death. Boy, isn't that the picture of self-righteousness? Look good at church. Look good in the right place. But in certain contexts, we are rotten to other people. We look good in public, at home. It's different. 
in our marriages, it's different. Why are you different? With certain relationships, it's different. We're, we're painted up like tombs sometimes. Looks good. Brings death. Verse 7, or sorry, number 7. Let's count them up. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness rejects Jesus. It encourages others towards judgment. It's deceitful. Emphasizes rule over character. It ignores the heart. It looks good, but brings death. Seven. Last woe. It pretends to be nice or good, but gets really mean when threatened. Really mean when threatened. Look at verses 29 to 30. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Said that a couple times, didn't he? You build the tombs of the prophets, decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding blood of the prophets. So Israel's, they've always been bad to their prophets. Israel's always been a little self-righteous. And so you, you imagine going to the, you know, to the prophet tomb decorating ceremony. You paint it, you bring your flowers and signs, and man, we love the prophet. I cannot believe our ancestors killed him. Can you? Imagine Jesus at one of these tomb decorating parties. And he hears them say, oh, we wouldn't be like them. This is amazing. Verse 32, fill up the measure of your fathers. Verse 34, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify and flog in your synagogues. I mean, this... Jesus is a human. I, I, I imagine this is being very difficult and overwhelming for him. He sees them at their tomb decorating party, about, talking about how they love the prophets. What are they going to do to him in two days? And he's the prophet. And he says to them, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Do you know Jews weren't allowed to crucify people? That was a Roman thing. When they heard him, they were like, they, they must have been like, he's a fake. We've never crucified anybody. And they hadn't yet. What's coming for him? Crucifixion from the people who claim to love the prophets. And so he says, you're the case study. You're the ultimate. You're the ultimate evil. You are every sin of Israel personified right here. You're the worst. And he can say that because they received the best. Him. And they rejected it and now you see his now you see his line you serpents how are you to escape being sentenced to hell it's an honest question serpents means you know a snake's not going to run you down right he's not a lion who's going to chase you down the snake's only way to get you is to hide and wait for you to walk by unsuspectingly then he gets you and pharisees are like that what do they hide behind they're righteousness, they're good. We don't need to be afraid of them. And yet when they get you, man, they ruin you. And when he says, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? He's not just being mean or overplayed. What did he come to do? Save people from hell. What are they rejecting? Him. So what's left? How are you going to escape? You're sending me to the cross. Unbelievable. What about us? Self-righteousness pretends to be nice. They're nice. Let's go to a funeral decorating party. They're religious. But when Jesus threatens their self-righteousness, they're going to kill him. Maybe I've experienced this a little more than some of us because of what I do. I'm a pastor. 
But there are certain things in certain people's lives, if you challenge them, you better duck. Okay? And there's probably some things like that in my life. I apologize if I've made you duck. But we got special things where we're righteous, we're right, we have reasons. We have reasons we didn't forgive that person. We have reasons we're not going to be nice to that person. We have reasons we're doing what we're doing. And if somebody says, I think that's unbiblical, I think it's not consistent with following Christ, you better duck. And then as a bystander, you kind of want to say, well, come on, what's Christianity 101? Right? I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. He has the right to speak into my life. He, he saved me. He told me. Don't we have the right sometimes to... I mean, I got blind spots that need to be questioned. Even if... Even if you, say, say you were wrong. Say you got me wrong. Say I, can, say I can explain it or it was miscommunicated. Should I bite your head off over it? Of course not. And yet, sometimes ooh, we, we, we're, like, we're like Pharisees because we're decorating the tombs and then when we get challenged, we're killing Jesus okay we don't we don't do it near that level and we're not like Pharisees we're Christians but we still have self-righteousness in our hearts and if somebody hits us where it hurts they're going to pay for it what is that folks it's not from the gospel it's self-righteousness it pretends to be nice and good but it gets mean when it is threatened all right we made it seven woes (laughs) what's the antidote what's the antidote 37 to 38. Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. First of all, it's an amazing view here from Jesus' perspective. He seems to be looking at the entire history of Israel. You've killed the prophets. And he says, over all that history, how often would I have gathered your children? How were you trying to gather Israel hundreds of years ago? Well, because I'm God, Jesus would say. He's God. And what's his view of life without him? Verse 38, see your house is left to you, what? Desolate. Self-righteousness, where does it end up? Desolate, empty, lost. Look at the phrase at the end of verse 37. I tried to gather you, but you were not, what? Willing. Let's camp there. Willing. What's it mean to be willing? What's it mean to be willing when it comes to Jesus and his invitation? The thing with self-righteousness is we hold it so dearly. We hold those pride issues so dearly, those excuses we have, those reasons we have. We hold them so tightly. And for those of you who became Christians as adults, you know it's like this, right, when you became a Christian. You know there was something precious, and, and Jesus was like, you need to lay that down. You need to, you need to sur- surrender to me. You need to lay down your self-righteousness, all your own standards, your own identity, this, all your, your lists, your own reasons, your excuses. You need to lay that down and let me give you mine. You need to let me give you mine, Jesus would say. Are we willing? Are we willing to receive Christ's righteousness and lay down our self-righteousness? Are you willing? 
Because listen, here's the thing. As he's casting out seven woes, in a couple days, what is he going to take upon himself? 777 woes. As he's giving the curse, what is he going to take upon himself in a couple days? The epidemic curse of all of God's wrath upon himself. As he is cursing self-righteousness, he's offering salvation from self-righteousness. In just a few days, he's saying, I died for all your sins. Will you receive it? Will you get your righteousness from me? As we said last week, the cross is perfect, the perfect antidote for self-righteousness. Self-righteousness says about what? I'm, I'm good, right? I can do it. What's the cross say about your goodness? You're so bad, the only way you're getting saved is for God to get crucified for you. That means you're bad, right? It's not a slap on the hand. Jesus wasn't slapped on the hand, or, or you didn't go to bed without dinner for your sins. He was crucified for your sins. That's how awful we are. Straight talk. But, how loved are you? How loved are you? He went there on purpose for you, to save you. He loves you. He loves you, so you don't need the game anymore to make yourself look righteous. Because guess what? If you trust in him, you are righteous. It's so freeing for me to not need anyone to think that I'm righteous in and of myself. Because I can say, honestly, guess what? I'm not. I'm not. But I'm loved. I have perfect righteousness. Why do I have perfect righteousness? Somebody tell me. Because Jesus gave me his. Jesus gave you his. If you trust in him, you have it all. You're an adopted child of God. You're made right with God. You have peace with God. Wow. It's the antidote. It's the antidote in conversion. And even if you've been a Christian a long time and you find some self-righteousness in your heart, what's the antidote today? Same thing, the gospel. Same thing, the cross. If you're angry at somebody won't talk to them because of your sins, you forgot something. Guess what it is? Your sins. If you're not showing somebody love because of some certain group of reasons, guess what you forgot? Jesus put aside every reason. He paid for the reason to show you love. The cross kills self-righteousness. What if we took a couple minutes to work it backwards? Just a couple minutes. The Pharisees were mean when they were confronted. What could we be with the gospel? Be humble, because we have what we need in Jesus. Number six, the the Pharisees tried really hard to look good, but they brought death. What would be different for us with the gospel? We could be honest, right? We don't have to paint a bunch of whitewash. And then instead of bringing death, what can we bring life because we're being, or what can we bring because we're being being, um, gospel-centered? Life, right? A couple of you have said, one thing I appreciate, Matt, about your sermons that I didn't hear from other people was that you occasionally talk about yourself as a sinner. I'd never heard that from a pastor. And that should be blatantly obvious. Does anybody doubt that pastors don't sin? Why is it nice to hear it? Because it makes, it's honest and it makes room for everybody. We don't have to present this whitewashed picture. No, we're sinners. That's the whole point. Jesus came to save us. That brings life. That brings life. Number five, instead of being ceremony focused, what can Jesus make us? Heart focused. We have the freedom to look 
and find sin because we're safe in Christ. We're loved, and he gives us the power to change. Number four, instead of cultivating rules, we can cultivate character. How we treat people is more important. Number three, instead of deceit, what should the gospel give us? Integrity. Truth matters. Who Jesus is matters. What he says matters. How we live matters. We don't want loopholes. We want honesty. Number two, instead of encouraging others towards judgment, here's a big one. What does the gospel have us doing? Inviting others to salvation. It's self-righteousness that keeps us from sharing the gospel so often. Invite others to salvation. Because number one, the Pharisees shut the door on the kingdom. By grace, we're willing to embrace Jesus as our righteousness. So let's heal the sickness of self-righteousness by being willing to receive the real righteousness from Jesus. The righteousness that only he can give. Let's pray. Father, we confess our self-righteousness to you. It's true, Lord, I confess mine. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us even though we're self-righteous. That you died for our sins in our place. You paid for all of our pride. Uh, and You've given us your righteousness, the righteousness you, d- you earned through your perfect life. Lord, uh, let's help us to put our faith in you this morning, whether it's for the first time. Lord, let us trust in you that you've taken our sins and we're right with you. We've been adopted. And help us to apply it to every aspect of life, every hint, every smell of self-righteousness. Lord, let us bring in the gospel, the reality that you have given us all we're looking for. You have given us what we need. And we can live a new life based on who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.